0: Afternoon again. It's such a privilege to be able to worship and be instructed by our God once again. And uh, there are no further announcements from consistory, so please stand if you're able to, and we'll get right into our call to worship. In this worship service, we'll be reflecting on our sinfulness and on God's perfect justice. And so, with that in mind, our call to worship comes from Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in him. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy, they are established forever and ever. So, as we gather to worship this awesome God uh, of justice and of faithfulness and righteousness, Uh, whose works are full of splendor and majesty Uh, we come confessing our dependence on him once again congregation where does our help come from our help is in the name of the lord who made heaven and earth the lord greets us with his blessing from scripture grace mercy and peace from god the father and christ jesus our lord amen Amen. so let's sing to our god of justice uh, confessing in song that god's justice and his righteousness are so fundamental to his nature uh, that they're the very foundation of his throne. We'll sing that in Psalm 89, uh, stands as one and five. Before we open God's word together once again uh, let's come before our Lord in prayer and we'll ask him for a blessing on our worship awesome God and Heavenly Father Lord we're so thankful for a God like you a God who's so worthy of our praise praise and adoration Lord we praise and we adore you for uh, your power and for your goodness and for your mercy and your love Lord, we also praise you that you are a God of justice, a God of holiness, a God of righteousness. Lord, we look at the world around us, and so often we see a severe lack of justice. It seems uh, that the seemingly innocent people are hurt, people who are guilty, well, they seem to walk free and even flourish. But Lord, we're thankful for a God like you that we can turn to in praise, and we can confess together that your throne, its foundation is built on righteousness and justice. Lord, as we open up your word together and as we read our confession based on your word, we ask that you will open up our hearts and open up our minds. Help us to come to understand you more, understand you better. And as we come to know you more, help us come to love you more and worship and praise you and adore you more. Lord, please help us uh, come to you uh, today and each day again, uh, thirsty and hungry, as we heard earlier today hungry to know you more and to be closer to you as we were created to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Our scripture reading for this service comes from Malachi 2, verses 17 to 3, verse 5. Malachi is the last book, a little book, the last book of the Old Testament. I'll just be reading a few verses from there. As already mentioned, in this service, we'll reflect on uh, our sinfulness, the injustice in the world, and also God's justice uh, using Lord's Days 3 and 4 of our Heidelberg Catechism. And so, in connection with that, let's turn to Malachi. We'll start at chapter, the last verse of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So far, our reading of Scripture. Let's sing together in response from Psalm 7. Psalm 7 will come up in our sermon later as well. Uh, There, King David is writing uh, another psalm, another prayer. And in this prayer, he's concerned with injustice, the injustice that he's experiencing in in his life. And so uh, David cries out to God, confessing his dependence on his justice and his just judgment. We'll read Psalm 7, or we'll sing Psalm 7, rather, stanzas 2 and 5. confessional reading for this service is Lord's Days 3 and 4. Lord's Days 3 and 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is our confession. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No, on the contrary. God created man good and in his image That is in true righteousness and holiness, so that he may rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin, as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally. As he has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, That is with everlasting punishment of body and soul. This is our confession based on the word of God. Brothers and sisters, how do you feel about murder mysteries? Uh, I was surprised to learn this past week that murder mysteries are extremely popular and even growing in popularity all the time. Uh, According to one website, uh, 10 of the most popular podcasts hosted by Apple Podcasts this year, uh, of the 10 most popular podcasts on that platform, six of them were true crime podcasts. Six out of 10, seven of the top 12. Isn't that remarkable? For some reason, people are fascinated with it. They love to listen to podcasts, documentaries, read books about crime, about injustice, uh, about suffering. And if you've ever invested uh, some time into one of these podcasts or maybe a documentary or a book about crime, uh, perhaps you've been gripped by them too, and you've become really invested in one of these stories that are being told, uh, a gripping story. But maybe you've experienced how sometimes these stories have deeply unsatisfying and unsettling endings. You can listen to this podcast or watch this documentary or read this book, all about this criminal. This person who's done horrific, almost unbelievable things. The way they've hurt people, destroyed people, destroyed lives. And sometimes you get to the end of the podcast or movie or book and you hear that at the end They seemed to go free. They seemed to live a long, happy life. When that happens at times, it can make you feel sick, physically ill, can't it? It's not right. Even worse, sometimes in these podcasts or in these movies, wherever you find the information, sometimes you hear that not only did the real culprit go free, sometimes someone else, due to a a huge miscarriage of justice, Someone else was falsely convicted for their crimes. And they paid instead. Human beings have a fascination with crime. We also have a deep desire for justice. At times when justice isn't served, as is so often the case, when we look at the news or these kinds of podcasts or books, or even if we just look back into our own lives, and we can see some of the ways that our friends or family members, or even we ourselves, how we were treated unfairly, and how the person who treated us so badly, or our friends or family so badly, they seem to go scot-free. They seem to flourish. When we see these kind of things, when we reflect on these kind of injustices, we can start to feel physically sick and unsettled. It's not right. We can be left asking, where is the justice? This isn't a new question, that's what we just read in our passage today. In the time of the prophet Malachi, uh, some faithful Israelites had returned from exile. You might remember back when we studied the book of Haggai, if you were here. Uh, they had rebuilt the te- Jerusalem, they had rebuilt the temple. And now Malachi is writing hundreds of years later. And these people who had returned from exile, they're still weak. They're still re- oppressed. In some ways, they're more oppressed than ever. They're oppressed socially and politically and economically. And more than that, they're oppressors who are wicked and, and violent. They seem to be flourishing. And so we read the people, the Israelites in Malachi's day, they feel sick. And so they turn to God and they ask, where is the God of justice? And we'll explore this question in three parts. First, we'll explore the desire for justice. Secondly, the problem with justice. And then thirdly, the giving of justice. First of all, the desire for justice. Desiring justice in itself, uh, it's not a bad thing, of course, and it's not a new thing. You can see it uh, hundreds, thousands of years ago in the time of Malachi, but even we saw it just a moment ago when we sang the words of David 3,000 years ago. If you read Psalm 7, you'll see there David is in a time of deep distress. He's looking back on his life and he's feeling sick He feels in this situation, we don't really know what situation it is, but he feels that he has done absolutely nothing wrong in this situation. And yet his name is being dragged through the mud. People are trying to ruin his reputation. They're trying to hurt him and lash out against him when he's done nothing wrong. Maybe you've had a time before too when you were treated unfairly. A situation, it was out of your control. You feel that you did nothing wrong. And yet people seem out to, get to, out to get you for seemingly no reason, just trying to cause you harm. And that's what King David is experiencing in Psalm 7. He's suffering. And so he turns to God and he appeals to him for justice. And likewise, the Israelites in Malachi's day, hundreds of years later, it seems like nothing has changed. God's people are tiny. They're being oppressed and mistreated. And yet it's their oppressors who seem to be thriving and flourishing. But unlike David, the Israelites in Malachi's day, they do something a little different. Instead, they don't just turn to God. Instead, as we read, they turn against God. Look carefully at their words in Malachi 2, verse 17. They accuse God. They say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And then they ask mockingly, where's the God of justice? Seeing the wicked prospering, the Israelites decide. The wicked are prospering, so God must love the wicked. He must be happy with evil. He must not be a God of justice at all. The evil get rich and seemingly are blessed. Criminals go free. It must be because God has, uh, evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? He, he doesn't care about justice at all. And in response to their being oppressed and slandered, they turn around and they slander their God. And we read at the beginning of our text that God is weary with their words. God is exhausted with these accusations that he loves evil and doesn't care about justice. Brothers and sisters, we hate the effects of sin and we hate injustice. And we hate when people are unfair and hurt us or unfair and hurt others especially the weakest in society. But Scripture has a beautiful truth for us. When you turn on the news and you're disgusted by what's going on in the world, Scripture teaches very plainly God sees those events too. And He's far more disgusted than you are. That truth should comfort us. When we're hurt or someone else is hurt, when someone's treating us unfairly or someone else unfairly, when we're righteously angered by sin and injustice and oppression in the world, we can take comfort in the fact, knowing that it's not that God doesn't care. and It's not that God delights in evil or in evil person, people. It's not that God isn't there. God is there. He sees. And he's angrier with the sin than you or I are. And writing this sermon, it reminded me of a time back in seminary. Hey, at one of our classes, our apologetics class, Uh, we were confronted with just some of the sin and injustice and the suffering going on in the world. We were discussing the problem of evil. And we were just talking about certain case studies, events in human history of deep, unimaginable pain and suffering. And one of my friends mentioned that he didn't realize how upset he was getting, how tense he was feeling, until somebody mentioned that God was more upset than we were and that the god of justice was watching and the god of justice was coming that's when he realized how upset he was because he felt a weight taken off his shoulders he could relax he could calm down god knows and god cares that's exactly what david is looking at in psalms 7 he cries out about this suffering this injustice going on in his life and what does david take comfort in in psalm 7 He reminds himself that God is a righteous God. That God is a God who tests minds and hearts, he said. And that God has appointed a judgment. And that he is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. I wonder if you've ever reflected on that verse before. And if you have, if you ever saw it as a great comfort. I think that's how David is seeing it. When he says that God is a God who feels indignation every day. Indignation is a deep feeling of anger against injustice. And God and David in his time, when he is suffering, when he is feeling oppressed and unjustly turned against, he takes comfort knowing God feels indignation every day. You and me, as sinful as we are from time to time, We watch the news or hear stories or something happens in our lives and we get angry at the injustice and suffering in the world. But God is far more angry and far more perceptive of our fallen condition. Again, remember back if you're able to, it was a long time ago now, to when we were studying Haggai. In Haggai, when we were studying it, we we heard about how the Israelites returned from 70 years in exile and finally they got around to rebuilding the temple And I wonder if you remember what the reaction of the people was when the temple was rebuilt. The younger people, when they saw the new temple, they were full of praise and rejoicing, tears of joy. And yet I wonder if you remember the elderly people, the people who had seen the former glory of the temple, how much greater it was before. They weeped tears of sorrow. This temple was nothing like what it was supposed to be. Well, I think that's an illustration for what we see here. God has seen, God knows intimately the former glory of this world. God knows the former glory of mankind, us created in his image. And he looks down at the earth and we're, we're disturbed by the suffering. He is more disturbed than we are. He knows how far humanity has fallen. As we confess in Lord's Day 3, God created man. He created us good and in his image. That is in true righteousness and holiness. So we might rightly know God, our creator, that we might heartily love him, live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. Looking at the world, God sees how far short we've fallen of our design. And so David takes comfort, knowing that God perceives the injustice and wickedness he's experiencing far more clearly than even he sees it. He knows that God is angrier about sin and suffering and oppression than he is. That God's a God who feels indignation every day at the state of the sinful world. And so David can lay down his own anger. Lay down this feeling of sickness at injustice. And give the Lord, as he says in Psalm 7, the thanks due his righteousness. Because he knows God has a deep righteous anger as well. And so we can give thanks knowing that there's not one single injustice in this whole world. Not one thing that slips under the radar. There's so much suffering and injustice going on. We have no idea. We wouldn't dare to look at it. God sees it all. And we can take comfort in that fact. He doesn't let anything slip by. He is going to hold the world to encounter. The Bible doesn't teach us that we hate sin and injustice too much. The Bible makes it clear we hate sin and injustice far too little. We find in Scripture God's desire for justice is way greater than ours as we confess in Lord's Day 4. God will certainly not allow humanity's disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished. We confess there he is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins and therefore he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally. And so that's the, the desire for justice. Our desire for justice, and far exceeding our best desire for justice, is God's desire for justice. Now that leads us to our second point, the problem of justice. And so again, in Malachi, the Israelites here, they're, they're crying out to God for justice. And God responds to them, it's justice you want, well, he warns them, it's justice that you're going to get. Now, I love how he, God himself puts it in Malachi 3, uh, verse 5. You can imagine for a second, earthly judges, they're pretty important. They got a lot on their plate. Maybe someone would bring a little injustice, a seemingly small one, to an earthly judge, and they'd be like, I don't have time for that. I, I don't really care. I got more important things on my plate. But what do we read of our God, the God of the universe, in Malachi 3, verse 5? Does God say any injustice is too small, that he just... You can't be bothered. No, the creator of the universe says in Malachi 3, verse 5, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You realize how beautiful, how powerful those words are. The God of the universe says he cares so much about injustice that he himself will rise up as a swift witness. And he'll stand up not just on behalf of King David when he calls. He says in Malachi, he'll stand up on behalf of the weakest, the lowest of the low. The God of the universe says when people uh, oppress widows, When they oppress orphans, hired workers, foreigners, he sees. He's going to rise up on their behalf as their witness. He's going to hold the oppressors to account. And this is incredibly good news for the oppressed. But this is incredibly bad news for those who are oppressors. It's incredibly good news for those who are innocent. But bad news for the wicked. And in Malachi, that's exactly God's point. He says, you want justice, I am going to bring justice. But he asked the Israelites in verse 2 of our passage, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The Israelites were crying out asking for justice, but they did not know exactly what they were asking for. They thought God bringing, injustice, or God bringing justice rather meant that God would come and judge the nations all around them that were oppressing them, while leaving them alone. But God lists these sins that he'll judge, sorcery and adultery and swearing falsely, uh, not caring for but impressing the lowest in society, and not properly fearing the Lord, he mentions as well. And the implication to the original readers, it should have been clear. These were things they were doing too. When the God of justice came, he wasn't just going to judge others. He was going to judge them. He was going to stand as a swift witness against them if they remained in their sin. This is why God starts off our section when the people raise cries against injustice and sin. It sounds kind of like Psalm 7, but David takes comfort in God's justice. But here, God's justice should disturb these Israelites because they're not living in faith. They're not fearing the Lord. Here, God says, when he hears their cries for justice, he gets wearied. He's tired. He's exhausted. And that's because God looks down on these Israelites, and he knows these people don't really care about sin and injustice at all. These people cared when other people were sinning. They cared when other people were oppressing. They cared when they were suffering. Then they cried for God to intervene. But all the while, did they hate sin and injustice? They were living in sin and injustice too. They weren't caring for the poor. They were mistreating widows and orphans and hired workers. They were committing idolatry and adultery and swearing falsely. They had no fear of the Lord in their hearts. And that they turn to the Lord and they try to demand justice. This is a strong warning for us too, I think. In Psalm 7, we see we can cry out to God for justice, and we can know he's more angry at sin and suffering than we are. Yet we need to be deeply conscious that when we're calling to God to judge, to deal with sin, we're not just asking for him to deal with sin out there, the other bad people. We're asking for him to deal with sin in here too, in here, first of all. Vodi hes he's a well-known and a very powerful preacher. And he often goes around speaking at universities. Uh, again, engaged in apologetics. And often he'll, he says that people will come to him after his talk and they'll ask him a question that's something like this. They'll ask him, if God is so powerful and he's so good, then why do evil and injustice exist in the world? How can a good God possibly put up with all this suffering, all this evil around us? And Vodi bakum says that typically what he'll do is he won't answer right away. Often what he'll do, first of all, is push back. He'll tell them that, first of all, it needs to be a big answer, but first of all, he says, they're asking the wrong question. They're asking their question accusing God, like the Israelites in Malachi. And so Bakum will tell them that they need to adjust their question first and ask the right question. He said usually they'll object a little bit. They'll be like, how can you tell me I'm asking the wrong question? It's my question. I can ask whatever question I want. And he'll say, no, no. You know how sometimes someone, uh, especially a kid, no offense kids, I do it sometimes too. Sometimes someone will ask you a question and the question is so far off base, you're like, you don't even know what you're talking about at all. That's what Vodibachum is saying here. He's saying that some of these people are completely off base. Vodibachum says, when you really understand the problem of evil, then you'll be willing to rephrase the question like this. He says, you'll be willing to come to me and look in my eyes and ask me this question instead. How on earth can a perfectly holy, all-knowing, righteous God know what I did and what I thought and what I said yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night? Bodhi Bauckham, he says, when you think of it that way, then we can start to have this discussion. Then we can start to talk. But until you understand it that way, you don't understand the problem of evil, the problem of sin, as the Bible describes it. Until you ask the question that way, you believe the problem of sin and evil is a problem that's out there. It's a problem with all those other people. But when you really understand the problem, you'll ask, Why is it that we are here today? Why hasn't God made us pay? We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. Why hasn't he wiped us out? We won't just ask, why is God so patient with them? We'll ask, why is God so patient with us? We won't just ask, what's wrong with the world? We'll ask, what's wrong with me? And so we've seen the desire for justice. We've also seen the problem with justice. The problem with justice is the evil's not just out there. The evil's in here. That brings us to our third and final point, the giving of justice. Like the Israelites, we can sometimes ask, where is the God of justice? And God gives an amazing answer to the Israelites. His answer is the God of justice is on his way. And he mentions here actually two comings of the God of justice, thankfully. Praise God. For us, 2,000 years uh, later, the God of justice has already arrived the first time. The good news for us is this God of justice has already come. And he came not first of all to judge, not first of all to condemn and consume and destroy. Christ said uh, himself of his first coming in John 12. He warned the people that judgment was coming on the last day, but for now, he said he came for a different reason. He said, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. That's what we read in Malachi 3 verse 1 as well. The Lord is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And when he comes, we read, he will not come, uh, first of all, with judgment and wrath that we deserve, but first of all, we read, he will come like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings of in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. And there's the answer to the question. Where is the God of justice for the Israelites? He's on the way. He's not ignoring the suffering. He's never been ignoring the suffering and injustice. He's never been ignoring the evil around them. He's never been ignoring the evil inside of them. He's coming first to wipe away the suffering. First of all, he's going to willingly enter the suffering before wiping away the suffering, rather. The, God of Son, yeah, the Son of God came down in the flesh and he came to suffer alongside us. The Son of God came down in the flesh and came to suffer for us. That's the amazing news. Before coming to judge us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to refine us. He came to cleanse us. So that people like you and me who have no business standing on the day of judgment, we will stand and we will celebrate and we will sing and praise God. Because on the day of judgment, Jesus Christ will come down and find us cleansed by his blood. He says he came to uh, cleanse us as with fuller's soap. So don't think of softer, gentle soap and uh, clothes washing. That's not what the author has in mind here at all. A Fuller soap, it was a a really harsh chemical. It it was lye. If you know what lye is, I have no idea. Uh, Washing it, though, uh, involved scrubbing and scraping fabric. And it involved placing the fabric on stone and beating it and beating it and beating it till all of the dirt was gone. Likewise, refining wasn't a delicate process. Uh, Derek Thomas, a a great preacher, has a meditation on this passage. And he explains uh, that refining silver It involved taking silver and melting it down and holding it over the hottest part of an extremely hot fire. And the silversmith had to be there the whole time because if he didn't hold the silver there in the hottest part of the fire long enough, well, then it would never be pure. But if he held it even a little bit too long, then the silver would be ruined. It would be destroyed. And so Derek Thomas explains. Someone asked, how do you know? How does the silversmith know when the refining process is done? And apparently the silversmith would pick it up and he would hold it there until he could see himself in it. Once he saw his reflection, it was done. It was perfect. It was pure. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what Christ has done for us. Christ has come down into this world of suffering and suffered more injustice than we ever will the greatest injustice the world has ever known. He, the sinless one, suffered like a criminal. He took our sins upon himself and paid the full price, everlasting punishment of body and soul on the cross. God's full wrath was poured out on him. He dr- drunk the cup of God's wrath down to the drugs. So there's nothing left for us. So we might be pure. So God might look on us And see the image of Christ. The image of God. What we were truly created to be. And so we see injustice in the world and we ask, is the God of justice gone? Does he exist? Does he care? And we look at Jesus Christ and we say, yes, he does. He's not far away. He's nearby. As we confess in Lord's Day 4, God's perfect justice demands that sin committed against the most high majesty of God be punished by the most severe, that is everlasting punishment of body and soul. And that's exactly what Christ already bore for you and me and all who believe in him. And so we can believe that we're no longer what Lord's Day 3 says. We're no longer on our own. We're no longer just wicked and perverse, inclined to all evil, totally unable to do any good. But by Christ's work, by his word and spirit, we might once again be good and in his image that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so we might come to rightly know God, our creator, to heartily love God, our creator, and to live with him in eternal blessedness, to praise and glorify him. And it's in looking to Jesus Christ that we truly begin to hate sin and injustice, and not just the sin and injustice out there in the world with those other evil people. We look to Jesus Christ suffering on the cross, and we hate the sin and injustice in here, that made him have to suffer and die. And we flee from it. We flee back to Christ. Where is the God of justice? Not far off. He's close. He's close by. And the sin and the suffering we hate, we know that Jesus Christ hates it even more. We know if he's delaying for a time, it's not because he doesn't care. He deeply does care for people like us. And we know that since he's just, we know that we can trust in Christ, that we will never be consumed. And I love how Spurgeon explains this. As sinful people on our own, the justice of God should terrify us. But now the justice of God, if we're in Christ, should comfort us more than anything else. I'll end with this quote from Spurgeon as he explains how that's true. He says, Jesus, I believe that your sufferings were for me. And I believe that they are more than enough to satisfy God for all of my sins. By faith, I cast myself at the foot of your cross and cling to it. This is my only hope, my shelter, my shield. It cannot be that God will smite me now. Justice itself prevents it. For when justice is satisfied once, it would be a grave injustice if God should ask for more. Now it is not clear, Now is it not clear enough to the eye that everyone whose soul has been aroused, uh, that justice no longer stands in the way of the sinner's pardon. God can be just and the justifier. God has punished Christ. Why should he punish twice for one offense? Christ has died for all his people's sins. If you are one of Christ's people, you cannot be condemned. You cannot possibly suffer for your sins until God becomes unjust and demands a second payment for one debt. He cannot destroy the soul for whom Jesus Christ allowed his soul to be crushed. Amen. Let's join together in singing hymn 70, stanzas one and two. Let's now confess our undoubted Catholic Christian faith as we have it summarized in the Apostles' Creed and put some music for us in hymn one. Let's come before our Heavenly Father once again in prayer. Wonderful God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we can worship you and we can praise you because we know that you are a God of justice. Lord, if you were unjust, then we wouldn't feel a strong desire to worship you at all. Lord, if you weren't a God of justice, we wouldn't feel secure in our salvation at all but we know that you are just and we can see this so clearly in the payment of your son for on our behalf on the cross lord there we can see your holiness there we can see your righteous anger against sin and oppression and injustice and suffering and lord there we can see that we can take shelter under his wings because in him we are spotless before you because jesus paid it all lord thank you for this wonderful news Thank you that each day we can wake up and we can come to you in prayer, we can come to you in worship and praise and adoration, knowing that no matter how we've fallen short, no matter how we've sinned yesterday or last week or last month or last year, no matter what ways we've fallen short of your glory, we can come before you with confidence, spotless, having been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. We ask that more and more you'll teach us to hate sin, not just sin in the world, but sin in our own hearts. Help us to flee from it. Continue to refine us. Uh, Fill us with your Holy Spirit and uh, teach us to come back to your word time and time again so more and more we might be conformed already now into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we can't wait until the day of judgment comes. We know that we can stand at the judgment because Christ has already been judged for us once and for all. And we are so thankful that when this day of judgment comes, it will be Jesus Christ himself as judge. The judge our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. Lord, there's no one else who would rather have judged this world. No one else is even close to qualified. Jesus Christ, having suffered the agony of hell himself, he is perfectly qualified. And we trust all of the suffering in this world over into his hands. Lord, we ask that you will use us each day now every day you bless us with with every breath you bless us with help us to labor in your service lord today we want to remember and thank and praise you for those who are laboring in your service all around the world oh, lord we think of the mission work going on in prince george and in mexico and brazil it's a, a privilege that we can support it lord please bless the work going on there help more and more people come to a saving knowledge of your son jesus christ lord To have uh, the church continue to send out laborers We know the the harvest is plentiful. but The workers are few. And we ask that uh, for all of us uh, as we live in this world, you might make it so that um, the church can uh, stand and the church can grow, that your church can become stronger and stronger. And we know that not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail uh, against it. Lord, thank you for claiming us for yourselves. Lord, claim more and more people for yourselves through our work and service as well. Lord, please uh, continue to bless the the work of safe families. It's going on in many churches in our federation and hopefully more and more soon in our church as well. Lord, help more people to be reached with the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, please uh, help us be able to share this love, not just with others, but also with one another. Lord, we know there are people who are suffering in our church. We know there are people who are lonely. We know there are people who need help. Lord, give us a heart for one another, as you have a heart for the orphan, the widow, the oppressed, uh, the, the laborer who is uh, being oppressed. Lord, to give us a heart that desires justice and fairness, as yours does. In Jesus' name alone, we pray all of these things. Amen. Once again, we have an opportunity uh, to give our gifts uh, for the work of Safe Families Uh, After that, please stand with me if you're able to, and we'll sing in closing the remaining uh, two verses of hymn 70. Brothers and sisters, lift up your hearts to the Lord and go home in peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.